This program is brought to you by the Practicing Law Institute, a nonprofit learning organization dedicated to keeping attorneys, professionals, and accountants at the forefront of knowledge and expertise. Well, Kurt, we're here. I didn't know if we'd ever get to this point. We are kicking <laughs> off the 100th episode of the Insecurities Podcast from PLI. What a ride. Yeah, it's been fantastic. I, I have a whole page of notes here, but you know, we've been at this for- Buckle up, listeners, buckle up. Three and a half years, you know, yeah. more than 50,000 downloads. We're now at 100 episodes. Mm-hmm. We have had so many wonderful guests, you know, SEC commissioners, Jaime Lazariga, Hester Peirce, Caroline Crenshaw, Allison Heron Lee, Rob Jackson, and former commissioner Troy Paredes. We've had regulators or quasi-regulators from FINRA, the MSRB, the CFP board, the PCAOB, the AICPA, and the North American Securities Administrators Association. We've had leaders from prominent industry organizations like the Security Traders Association, the Managed Funds Association, the Consumer Federation of America, Modern Markets Initiative, the Institute for the Fiduciary Standard, and Healthy Markets. Of course, we've had tons of wonderful academics and thought leaders, including today's guest, stay tuned, from institutions like the University of Pennsylvania, Cambridge University, the Nebraska College of Law, UCLA, Washington and Lee, the University of Richmond, the SMU Dedman School of Law, George Washington University, and the George Mason University Antonin Scalia Law School. We've had in-house lawyers, we've had big law partners, we've had New York Times bestsellers, we have had Pulitzer Prize winners, And there is so much more to come, Chris. I was going to say one other title we don't bestow on a lot of our guests is Meme Lords. We've even had some social media uh, kings and queens on over the years, Kurt. I mean, just thinking back today as as we record here about, you know, meeting in the law firm office with a table with microphones on it and working with a a tech, right, to figure out how all this stuff works. And I think we probably put about 25 hours into our first episode that we then quickly deleted and moved on to a second episode to try to sound a little bit better. It's been, you know, something that I think, you know, you brought a lot of inspiration to, and I was happy to help support along the way, but it's been a, a great, great way to, to get to interact on things we care about and, and get to meet some of those great people you talk to as well. So 50,000 yeah. downloads in, my wife is still amazed that that many people would ever want to listen to us talk. <laughs> but it's been it's definitely been a great three and a half years and, and will be many more hopefully to come. Yeah, no, it's been great. I've enjoyed the ride with you, Chris. Thank you. I've said this before. I'll say it again. You brought me into this project. So thank you <laughs> for that. Uh, thank you to the PLI team, to Amen. all of our guests, for everyone who supports the show. And most of all, thank you to our listeners. And if you know somebody who should be a listener, flip this one to them. Tell them to subscribe. All right, Kurt, enough about us, enough celebration. There's more work to be done, and we'll start it with today's episode. Hello, and welcome to the Insecurities Podcast, keeping it fresh and staying wonky on the latest securities, regulatory, and enforcement developments with a practitioner's perspective on the stories you should be following. As always, I'm Chris Ekimoff, and I'm here with my co-host, Kurt Wolf. Oh, I think everyone knows that I'm very excited to be with you again today, Chris. And I'm actually, I always say I'm excited. I am excited. <laughs> it's our 100th episode, but we've got a great guest. One of our very first guests is coming back to, to visit with us today. It is Professor J.W. Verrett, who teaches over at George Mason at the Antonin Scalia 
School of Law. Chris, I'm a little in the dark actually on this one. It feels like, from what I'm told, this is the intersection of, of law and accounting, but it feels a little more accounting to me. So Chris, what are we gonna be talking about? I'd say it's an intersection, Kurt. There's not just one place where we can meet as, as CPAs and JDs. You know, Professor Verrett is publishing a paper discussing one of the topics, Kurt, we've actually covered a bit on this podcast related to disgorgement mm -hmm. accounting, all of which we'll get into. But before we jump into that sticky wicket or that wonky topic, Kurt, why don't you give us a brief background on one of the OGs of the Insecurities Podcast, <laughs> Professor Barrett. Yeah, happy to do it. Uh, I think this is JW's third time on the show. He mm -hmm. was in episode five. He came on one of our one of our holiday special episodes a couple of years ago, back again for a full-length episode. But the, the bio is JW Verrett is an associate professor of law at the Antonin Scalia Law School, as I mentioned, where he lectures on banking, securities, and corporation law, as well as accounting for lawyers. In 2022, Professor Verrett joined Lawrence Law as counsel, representing clients in investigations and litigation concerning securities and financial regulations, cryptocurrency regulations, FCPA matters, and corporate governance. JW is a member of the American Bar Association Business Law Section's Corporate Governance Committee, where he chairs the SEC subcommittee. He is also, get ready for some alphabet soup, we love to do that. He is also a certified public accountant in the Commonwealth of Virginia, a certified fraud examiner, that's CFE, a certified valuation analyst, that's CVA, and is certified by the American Institute of Certified Public Accountants. Anyone who's been paying attention should know by now, that's AICPA, in financial forensics. That's a CFF, apparently. Didn't know that one, it's new to me. Uh, JW is a current member of the Financial Accounting Standards Board Advisory Council, the principal advisory committee that assists the FASB in development of generally accepted accounting principles. That's GAP. One more for the bingo card. <laughs> <laughs> JW also serves on the board of directors of the Zcash Foundation. When he's not busy with all that, you can find his work published in the Wall Street Journal, the New York Times, the Business Lawyer, the Standard Law Review, the Harvard Business Law Review, many other outlets, and you can hear from him right here on the Insecurities Podcast. JW, thank you so much for joining us again. I didn't know that this was the hundredth episode. I'm so honored to be here for that. I, I love this podcast. I I met you, Kurt, first at a at one of the SEC Speaks events. Yeah. I, I went to it. I said I should go to this. I should try to meet some potential you know clients or whatever. As I started to practice more and do more forensic accounting work in support of securities litigation issues. And I didn't know anybody there. And I was sitting alone. I was like the nerdy kid at the table. <laughs> and Kurt just came by and was like, "Hey." I saw you on Twitter live tweeting this. I'm live tweeting this too. I'm Kurt. And I was like, oh, wow, you're Kurt. Yeah. <laughs> so I, it's been a treat to have your friendship, to get to meet Chris through you. Chris and I co-taught a forensic accounting class at Scalia. That's right. And the students love Chris. I mean, they tolerate <laughs> me. But Chris has got all those forensic accounting war stories. They loved it. They ate it up, man. The the teaching of vowels were like, more Chris, more Chris. <laughs> uh, so it's good to be with you guys. We had a lot of fun, and and I learned a lot from your podcast. In fact, the paper we're talking about today, I finished up this summer because I was I was streaming a P one of your podcasts about the Securities Enforcement Guidebook that yeah. one of your guests has written, and she was talking about SEC v. Lou. 
And I was like, oh, crap, I got to finish that paper. <laughs> so I finished it up, submitted it, and I was like, let me call these guys and see if they want to talk about it a little more. So that, it's good to, so great to be here, guys. I, I love your podcast. I listen to every single one. I, I love that we are now just a, a kind of a, a stalking horse reminder for certain professors to get their work done over the uh, I thought you were going to yes. say it was so insightful, but you said, oh, no, I had already started it, and I was reminded of it. Uh, but, you know, JW, we want to thank you, too, for for kind of jumping out early in the podcast. And obviously, your your personal friendship with then-Commissioner Rob Jackson really gave us uh, one of my favorite episodes, uh, albeit mainly because of references to to Star Wars, uh, but led to to really, you know, putting yeah, right. helping us with our vision of the, of the podcast yeah. and develop a lot of the topics we've done since. So you've, even though you're not on the microphone every week, uh, you're definitely a big part of what we've, uh, what we've put together here. So uh, it's great to have you That's back. That's great. Well, yeah, I, I'd love to, you know, if you need like an Ed McMahon character who just kind of says, oh, 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 oh. Standing off to the honey. side with a microphone. Yeah, if we ever take yeah, this I'll to network that. TV, you'll be, uh, you'll be first in line. But That's awesome. Excellent. Well, I know we want to get into to some of the discussions that I know the paper, uh, you know, being published in the next couple of weeks here, you know, Professor, is definitely a topic that we've talked about consistently uh, on the podcast, albeit not with the level of analysis and detail I'm sure we'll discuss today. Uh, but disgorgement is a word I'm sure 80% of our listeners have heard before, and maybe even half of them have a, a decent understanding of. Uh, disgorgement plays an interesting role in the action side of what we talk about from the SEC. You know, we talk about penalties and disgorgement being two of the financial remedies that happen when uh, an enforcement action is brought or a settlement is negotiated. Uh, you know, penalties are a very prescribed, regulatorily defined idea. And there's actually recommendations, if not actual uh, numbers that align with those fines or those penalties for the specific actions that the SEC may bring, which can, in certain cases, limit the amount of money that can be collected from a, a wrongdoer or someone who's violated the SEC's requirements. Disgorgement is is a concept that I think rings true with a lot of people, but is is not as prescribed in the language of the regulations and obviously has a wide diversity in practice. So for those of you who are unaware, disgorgement is really that attempt to provide equitable relief as well as to grant the losers, if you will, or those who have been harmed uh, in a specific investment scheme or been defrauded with compensation for for that for that issue. So I'll pause there being the the only non-JD on the podcast, knowing Professor Verrett walks in both camps and Kurt, you've done a little bit as well. Uh, you know, disgorgement really does look to to rectify some wrongs here and, and actually punish as well as reward. So I just to give you a preview on the paper, the idea is as I was reading Lou versus SEC, and as I'm developing my own career as a I've been a securities law professor for a long time. And and as I had, if you can see behind me, these four boys right here. So <laughs> I became a law professor and I was like, wow, this is great. And then I have these four boys and I was like, oh, man, I need to do like some stuff on the side. <laughs> just, you know, these guys college. But I got the CPA, the CFF, the CVA. I got all that mm -hmm. alphabet soup. And to do some stuff on the side a little bit, our university lets us do that one day a week. And. I wanted to build my scholarship just as a scholar. There are fascinating issues to the intersection of securities law and financial accounting and forensic accounting. And th that intersection fascinates me because it's two different literatures talking to each other. And the accountants mm -hmm. don't know enough about law. The, lo the securities lawyers don't know enough about accounting. And you can As find shown on this podcast every other week. Ah. Yeah, that's what you guys do, right? That's a lot of why this podcast is so valuable. So I'm finding issues to write about that have real, I think, academic weight and, and journal weight at the intersection of those two concepts. So as I was reading Lou versus SEC, I see the court, the Supreme Court, say, okay, disgorgement is limited to, quote, net profit. 
and that's it. Yep. And I think from the accounting side, that is so pregnant with meaning, so filled with meaning. I could write a book <laughs> trying to figure out what that means, but it's one sentence there. So I said, oh my God, I got to write a paper about this to try to think through what they mean. What do they mean by this? So they cite some restatements of, 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 of remedies. So, so I said, well, let me go read the restatement remedies and see everything that that restatement that SCOTUS gave some credence to because they referenced it in getting to that holding that disgorgement is limited to net profits. Let me read that restatement, see everything those restatements have to say about how to think about what net profits means. The simple answer would be, oh, well, just whatever's in the, whatever's in your latest 10Q, 10K. But that's a naive view mm -hmm. of this. That's a very naive view of this because that idea, as you know, GAP has a purpose. Its purpose is to inform investors, inform creditors, inform users of the financial statements. It's built on a series of principles. Disgorgement has a different purpose. And so disgorgement accounting has a somewhat different purpose that is not always aligned. The holding itself says, it re references the restatement. It doesn't explicitly say that you can deduct overhead. Mm -hmm. But I think it's clear that you can. Yeah. I think it's clear you can. The restatement says you can. The SEC's own position after the Lou case on remand, they offer an accounting it, it, that includes overhead, that allows deduction of overhead. So that means cost accounting. So now we're leaving the world of GAAP and we're going into cost accounting because GAAP doesn't match revenues and costs in that way. There's a matching principle, but they don't match overhead to a somewhat associated revenue in that way. That's not a thing in GAAP. But I think that's a legitimate focus in disgorgement accounting. And now we're, we're bringing multiple accounting literatures together to try to think through this legal question. To me, that's fascinating. And I think that not only that, but it's not just academic accounting stuff. Billions of dollars in settlements hinge on this. So let's be direct here, folks, listeners, securities lawyers. You need to hire Chris. And if you can't get Chris, you need to hire me to do a report for you as you're engaging in negotiations with the SEC over yeah. disgorgement award. I think, uh, I think, we, That's got, what we're talking yeah, I think we have to cut that for solicitation purposes, yeah. JW, but I appreciate the recommendation. Well, you can solicit as an accountant and you can just tell people, <laughs> look, I, you know, joking aside, it is important to go to the SEC with some kind of a report that's solid, that shows how you get to the yeah. disgorgement award you think is appropriate when you're trying to settle. And I, I think I think it's important to think through carefully how you get to that and to use something reliable. The burden's against you if you ultimately go to court. The SEC only has to make a reasonable showing, and then the burden's on the defendant to counter that with something. Mm -hmm. So I think you need something like you know using the cost accounting methodologies that the firm has used in the past or that peers have used are using some other accounting methodology that's not managerial accounting, that's maybe regulatory accounting, or maybe ICO, you know, international accounting standards, something. This is a complicated question. There's a lot that hinges on it, billions of dollars worth of, worth of disgorgement awards every year. Yeah. So you got you to gotta come to the table, and the SEC said that, I think the SEC chief accountant has said this in speeches, you got to come to the table with, with something solid mm -hmm. to negotiate that final Settlement. That's right. And so just to get into that billions question or, or discussion, Professor Verrett, the disgorgement numbers have been growing pretty consistently year over year at the SEC up until the year 2022. And Kurt, we're going to turn to you for why that might have changed. But in 2018, <laughs> we saw disgorgement of about $2.5 billion. In 2019, we're over three at 3.2. In 2020, we're at $3.6 billion. So those numbers continue to be uh, you know, on the rise. However, 
I am, again, as you've described, Professor Verrett, I'm an accountant. I'm not an attorney. So phrases like statute of limitations are somewhat understood by me, but but often you know can be uh, misconstrued. And I think, Kurt, we've talked in the podcast prior about some of the Supreme Court decisions changes yeah. to the statute of limitations as it relates to disgorgement. Yeah, I mean, there's an important history, right? Building up to that that sentence that JW called out in the Lou decision, mm-hmm. you know, the the net profits line. But how we get there matters, right? I think there was a, a long history of SEC enforcement cases where the staff, and these are often settled matters, right? So on some level, it's it comes down to what a, a defendant will agree to or what the subject of an investigation will agree to. But there's a long history of what felt like, you know, the staff was aware that if they were going to impose a civil penalty, that there's a statute of limitations for that, right? So we all can sort of agree to that. But then there's this other piece that emerged, and that's this idea of disgorgement. And for a long time, there didn't really seem to be any structure or limitations around it, right? That That is, in a sense, where the enforcement staff could make hay. They could send out their own accountants and say, we can go all the way back to the beginning of time with this company. If we, you know, if there's, if it's plausible that this, these violations, whether it's fraud or, you know, reporting violation, whatever it may be, if, if that's 20 years old, well, let's let's count all the way back 20 years and we're going to slap that number on the table. Then you get into horse trading a little bit, right? Because the defendants are, are probably not going to like that number, but they didn't really have a reason to say, well, you can't go back that far, right? Because we're talking about disgorgement. This is an equitable remedy. It's separate from the penalty. And everybody agrees you've got a statute of limitations on that. Well, then we get this line of cases over the last few years. SEC cases were really popular uh, with the Supreme Court for a few years. And, <laughs> and there were a couple here that matter that were among those cases. The first is really Kokesh, right, which goes back to 2017. And the question in Kokesh was, well, SEC, can you just look back as far as you want in time to calculate the amount of a disgorgement remedy? And the court said, no, no. The way that the SEC uses it, it's functioning like a penalty. Exactly. Unless it is limited only to ill-gotten gains, right? There's a little bit of a squishy area there. But the way the SEC had been using disgorgement was functioning more like a penalty. And so they said, you've got a five-year statute of limitations that's going to apply to that. Well, that sent people scrambling. The defense bar loved it, of course, right? And that's causing some folks like JW suggested to go out and get their own accountants to do some real some real hard work so that you could come to, come to the table with a number. A few years later, in, in the Lou decision, the question was really, well, wait a second. What, what is disgorgement exactly? Can the SEC mm-hmm. get that at all, right? You've sort of said it's a penalty, but it's not the type of penalty that's described in the authorizing statute. What is it? Can they do it? And the court said, yes, the, the SEC can, in fact, seek a disgorgement remedy, but they put up some important limitations around that, including the net profits limitation uh, that that JW mentioned. Now, one other thing that that uh, that I should bring up, just so that we're all you know on the same page here, was the National Defense Authorization Act of yeah. 2021, which amended the Securities Exchange Act of 1934. I won't get into all all the backstory on that, but people were a little <laughs> bit surprised. It's unique. The, we'll <laughs> say it's unique yeah. that the NDAA had the effect of amending the the Exchange Act. But what it did was essentially stretch out the statute of limitations for the disgorgement remedy. You can now look back 10 years. So we still need Chris, we still need JW to get in there and do the hard work and figure out what the number is. They maybe are just looking a little bit farther back in time than they would have been immediately after Lou. 
So that's sort of the backdrop, and I've I've been kind of going on for for a while. But but no. JW, bring us back, bring us back to your paper because I think that's where you come in. Yeah, that's good. That's thank you for that. And I had to I had to think about in the paper what to do about the NDAA because there's at least a couple people writing on this who say maybe if you look at things a certain way, maybe the NDAA overturns Lou. I don't know. That's a theory. Yeah. There's no case affirming that yet. And so far, the cases are all cons- continue to be consistent with loser reasoning, yeah. limiting to net profits. So that's what I'm going with for this yeah. paper. And I think that's what everybody's going with. So I just put a footnote that that's an interesting theory and who knows. But for now, you still need to call Chris. Yeah. <laughs> so well, and if he's not available, call me. <laughs> so, 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 okay. So how do, how do we approach net profits? What, what do we do? Well, there's a couple steps here. First, we got to figure out what revenue is tainted. So we got to have some dirty revenue that's going to be disgorgeable versus non-dirty revenue. So that's something you have to think about. And if there are multiple defendants or multiple parties, you might have to apportion that. Joint and several liability is not allowed. So the court has said that's not permitted. So you're going to have to apportion on the revenue side the different parties and what revenue belongs to them. With parent subsidiaries, that might become an issue, or with joint defendants, that might become an issue. On the expense side, then, once you've figured out what revenue is tainted, then you have to figure out what legitimate expenses can be deducted from that revenue to then arrive at the net profits number. Legitimate expenses. And here's the thing. You walk kind of a balance, kind of a tightrope in that. The expenses need to be related to the tainted revenue first, but not so related that they further the fraud. So the expenses, the legitimate expenses that are being deducted need to be close enough to the tainted revenue that they can be matched to it, but not so closely related that they further the fraud. So in an FCPA matter, your bribes, your actual bribes, you can't deduct that. From, <laughs> That's right. From the revenue, right? But all the back office expenses for that subsidiary mm-hmm. in delivering on the contracts that were received as part of the bribe are deductible, right? And there are related, legitimate expenses related to the tainted revenue. So that will be deductible. So that's the basic framework here. Step one, step two, and think about apportionment between multiple defendants along the way. Now, what I'm, what I'm thinking about in the paper really is much more toward the corporate side. Individual defendants, this is generally just going to be a lot easier. Mm-hmm. And you don't need a lot of sophisticated bells and whistles that I'm thinking through in this paper. Because for the individual defendants, what are we talking about? We're talking about insider trading, probably, and the deductible expenses or like your brokerage fees or something. So it's pretty yeah. simple. You probably don't need, I mean, call Chris if you want to. Probably don't need to call Chris. <laughs> it's probably more corporate defendant focused. And that's where the difficulties of accounting methodology come in. The other interesting question I spent a lot of time in the paper thinking about is just different accounting methodologies other than gap that could be useful. What about cost accounting is the first and, and, and most interesting question here. To what extent can you take overhead that's not itemized for individual revenue lines mm-hmm. in gap? Because gap doesn't make you do that. But what extent can you apportion some of that for the purposes of your deduction of legitimate expenses for a lieu disgorgement accounting? Uh, I think that's an interesting question. Then I think you get an interesting questions of to what extent can you use regulatory accounting Banks. If you got a bank, right? The accounting methodologies for like bank regulatory purposes are totally different from GAAP. So if you're a public traded bank, oh my God, you got such a mess here. You do internal cost accounting to, to manage the company. You do GAAP to do your filings with the SEC. 
you do tax accounting for the IRS reports, which is different from SEC. Then you do bank regulatory accounting, which is different for you have like multiple types of accountant account, which is great. It keeps us all employed. But the bank regulatory accounting is sort of like starts with gap and then it's all adjusted in various ways. And then it's it's uh, it makes its way into capital requirements. It makes its way into stress tests and CCAR stuff. So all over bank regulatory accounting, there's adjustments and, and non-GAAP stuff that goes on in there. So to what extent is some of that more appropriate for a disgorgement accounting than GAAP? I think you can make a legitimate, reasonable argument that it might be in certain cases. The paper raises more questions than it solves. Uh, it flags questions. I don't have all the answers because there's just so many questions. Of course. Well, part of what I'm doing is just kind of telling the world that, look, let me think through the top 100 things that could com be complicated post-Lou with that with that one sentence that's so pregnant with meaning. And I got a paper out of it, at least, and a great podcast. So that's what I'm doing there. And along the way, also, spent a lot of time with the restatement <laughs> of remedies yeah. that the Supreme Court relied on to get to their ruling that has a lot of great content in it about disgorgement account and trying to think through that. Yeah, and just to kind of touch it was on- a fun paper to write. The, just to touch on some of the, the things that you were fleshing out there, Professor Verrett. The original Lou case was uh, for uh, a cancer treatment center, of which I believe right. something like twenty-seven million dollars was invested, and twenty million of it was stolen by you know the the folks who were you know involved in the matter or, or used for for inappropriate purposes. And so they they kind of walk through, and you can read some analyses out there on the Lou case about where you draw that line between buying a piece of equipment for you know a cancer screening. Uh, you could make the argument that that expense was you know, legitimate because it's, it both has value and, and was an asset that could be utilized in, in what the business would have been versus some of the, those overhead issues. And Kurt, I know when, when the professor said overhead, your, your eyes glazed over, but those are really kind of tough expenses to align to, uh, individual revenue, right? We talked about the matching principle when we did our, our revisiting of the house of gap episode a few weeks ago and, and attempting to match those expenses to revenue is difficult. And from a, disgorgement accounting perspective, you can imagine if you are operating in three different regions of the world and one of the regions is found to be the area of issue that the overhead related to region two is probably going to be one of those that's in furtherance of the fraud versus the overhead that might have been, you know, allocable to regions one and regions three. You can say the executive salary in region two, if he's out there, you know, bribing to your point, JW is probably not going to be, be expensive. But what do we do with the global CEO? Right. How much of his well, time me, was let spent? Let me clarify that last one a little bit on executive comp, because this is an issue that's likely to come up a lot. Mm -hmm. There is language in Lou that says excessive comp is not deductible. Normal comp is, mm -hmm. even for the person doing the bad thing. So I, I think the methodology for what you just described, if there's like a subsidiary doing the bribing or whatever, you would need to do a peer review and look at what a normal number is for that bad actors comp or mm -hmm. defendants comp, whatever. Right. And you could deduct the normal amount, the peer reviewed kind of comparable amount and think about what the excess is and the SEC is not going to let you deduct the excess. The, excess comp. the easiest way to break that up Another is salary is. and commission, right? If he's making 150 K and his, That's comp, good, yeah. His, yeah. his commission bonus based on the performance of that region is, you know, 600 K you could probably make an argument for the 150. You're probably not going to make a good argument for the 600 on the other side. Yeah, that's a great way to, to mm -hmm. yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And then also, you know, one of the things I loved about the paper is, is kind of that restatement. And I don't mean the restatements as it relates to the legal opinions. I mean, an actual restatement of a, of a business's financial 
financial statements. You, you, Kurt's in, in court arguing in defense of, of a client uh, you know, that has financials from 2010 to 2018 that are subject to this kind of disgorgement, disgorgement idea. And you know, it comes out that 100 is the right number. Everybody shakes hand and is happy. You know, six weeks later, those financials for 16, 17, and 18 are found to be you know, materially misstated and need to be restated. <laughs> What do we do, yeah. right? Disgorgement has either been calculated, negotiated, or already decided. But the to to the professor's point, the gap application here is known to be incorrect and then adjusted. Do we need to go back and change that number? Is disgorgement dead? And now we're we're done with that conversation. It's definitely uh, that time period is really interesting to me. I'd, I'd be excited to, to hear what I'll, you guys I'll, think. I'll, I'll venture a view from the defense bar on that yeah. one. I'm just <laughs> <laughs> settled say, law, settled yeah, law. <laughs> yeah, that's a that is a thing decided, my friend. We're not going to mm-hmm. go back and uh, you know create a new mousetrap here. But I, I don't know. Maybe maybe JW has a different idea about mm-hmm. it. Well, uh, the specific case of of if you've settled and then you restate later, I don't know. That seems like more a legal question than an accounting mm-hmm. question. But the interesting accounting question, there's a lot of interesting things that come out of restatements. Because even if like, what if you restate going back, but the restatement is of the type that doesn't require you to adjust a, a, a number this year, mm-hmm. and this year's financials are used for purposes of the disgorgement, but maybe you don't have to follow GAP's rules on how prior statements affect current financials. Maybe you could think about that resulting in an adjustment to the disgorgement accounting, even if GAP doesn't allow you to change today's financials. That, that That's one of the complications I could see. Yeah, those little R and big R restatements, we call them, where you're not, right. yeah, you're yeah, not yeah, reissuing, right, exactly. you're just correcting prior years. If we've got a five-year statute of limitations, Kurt, I don't remember what the years are now. We've had so many different statutes <laughs> coming through. But that that you know that time period with which you're doing either a little or a big R restatement is really going to impact the calculus that that goes in. Or what about what about just a change in estimate? Hmm. You know. Yep. Is the SEC going to allow you to use a change in estimate to lower your disgorgement number when you change that estimate just before the case started? So I, I will just say, and and I hate to reiterate JW's plug for Chris's uh, services, but I do think it's <laughs> it's actually helpful to. Have, or if you can't reach Chris, right, or, yeah, <laughs> it's a, but it's a I phone tree we call each other. There's there's a lot of space for for folks like you in these cases because I think you know as someone who sits in the room sometimes negotiating these settlements, w- there are conversations around these issues. How do you treat a subsidiary that you know the SEC's perspective is going to be you know, the whole thing was a sham. It was a shell company. They were doing no good. And we're like, well, wait a second. They had some legitimate business operations. Let the, you know, whatever the case may be. But it, we tend to have these conversations in, in many cases, not all, in, in broad strokes, right? You're saying, okay, so you think it's a, it's 100. But oh, I mean, let's be real here. Some of that was legitimate. We're probably talking more like 70, you know, and they're like, well, is it 70 or is it 80? And you kind of start to do that sort of that sort of horse trading. JW, I think your point was a very good one. You need to come to the table with something more precise than that, right? Because the staff isn't always going to use the limited accounting resources available to them to, to be as precise as you might be in the defense bar, right? They're, they've got too many cases to work on. So I think as a defense tactic, it, it's potentially a strategic opportunity or an advantage if I can have a JW or a Chris come in and think about these issues. What do we do about a bigger, a little R restatement? What do we do with an estimate? And how does that get to a disgorgement figure that our client can live with? How can we show the staff that this number feels right? Yeah, I think so. And I think it requires it requires you to do something credible. 
It has to be credible. You can't just make stuff up and say lower number better, just like valuation yeah. in litigation. If you if you're outside the bounds of reasonableness, the judge is going to say, okay, I'm throwing that out. That trash report is going through. I'm going to the other one. It has to be within the bounds of reasonableness and credibility. And that's why I think look to the restatement to try to define things. Look to when if you're going to use an alternative method of accounting, then the gap numbers that are in the 10Q or the latest 10K have some established accounting methodology, whether it's tax, regulatory, cost accounting methodologies that the firm itself used or that peers used. I think if you're using one of those three, I think you're in a pretty reasonable place. Yeah, and you know we we like to talk about some of the more interesting violations, right, of credibility. There'll always be the case, uh, to your point, Professor, changing the accounting estimate the day before you you find out that the SEC is looking into you, right? That's <laughs> that's not a good faith action. You're 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 changing the way that your entire uh, financial reporting system may may be valuing those things. But the the room for discussion here, I think, is what's going to continue to make this topic interesting as we talk about valuation or, or the type of expenses, things like research and development, right? Even if we don't look at disgorgement, research and development is one of the areas that accountants will fight about, you know, at every bar. I don't know if accountants still go to bars at every time they can about how to treat these upfront expenses that are tying to revenue much farther down the road, right? That's the crux of the argument is where do we put those on the balance sheet of the income statement because of the work we're doing? How would R&D go in if you're creating a product that's then leading to an SEC issue that's deemed to have ill-gotten gains attached to it? Is that an allowable expense or not? You could be in both camps, right? In terms of figuring out how that how that applies. Yeah. Uh, another topic I, I raise in the paper, I float. I don't have the final answer to, and it's a little more experimental, granted. What if valuation could be interesting in this context? I mean, if with if net profits is the rule, right? I mean, finance finance theory tells you that a value of a thing is just a discounted present value of the future cash flows, the future net profits. Finance professors see no difference between the value of the thing, of the business entity, and its future cash flows. They're the same thing to a finance professor, just expressed differently mathematically. So think about it in one context. Say you have a subsidiary. Subsidiary does an FCPA violation, gets the contracts, then you sell the subsidiary. Right, you you might say one of the, the ill-gotten gain was the profit on selling the subsidiary, on, on offloading that subsidiary. So that's a change in the value of the business. So I don't know. What if what if you got the big or think about another way from stock price valuation? Yeah. If you rather than DCF models, what if you got the big contract through an FCPA bribe and your stock price went up a ton? Um, maybe that's a way to figure out the ill-gotten gain. It's not technically net profit. But it's not all that different from net profit. It's just a mathematical transition to a different way of expressing the value of something. But maybe the tools of valuation could be useful here. I don't know. There's no case law that says this yeah. is a thing, and I've never seen an example of it being used. I just raise it as something to think about. So are you sort of asking, and it, you know, I'm not the accountant here, but it sounds like you're sort yeah, of asking. Kurt, we're going like, to get you to take the CPA exam, <laughs> Oh, my gosh. You'll be ready. <laughs> so let's just assume it's a fraud case. Like, what, what was the fraud worth? And I think exactly. what you're saying is there there may be more to it than just saying what were the ill-gotten gains from the fraud, right? There could be other ways of thinking. There could be other categories, right? If it's the the entire value of the business goes up in some material respect, let's point to that. Sure. Is that is that the idea? As as an alternative to okay. the revenue streams and expenses. 
Could be. I don't know. I mean, that rings to me similar to, you know, when you see a, a class action lawsuit about a change in stock price related to a fraudulent disclosure, right? Prices go up and go down. You could make the argument that some of the fraudulent activity, again, that we're assuming in these hypothetical cases, is leading to that increase in value and that being a gain for shareholders or for ownership well beyond the net profits, right? Being limited only to revenues minus those legitimate expenses. So uh, whether that business is thereby sold off afterwards or just the inherent value in it, is there a bigger pie there to take a look at uh, to potentially disgorge? We may, Professor, have just come up with our own novel theory of disgorgement that we can apply in, uh, in cases to come. Yeah, I mean, there's potential for there to be overlap between the procedure for calculating damages in a securities class action, which is, as you described, basically a stock price event study and disgorgement methods. There may be some overlap. So you've mentioned a couple of times, JW, that there's been a line of cases either applying or construing Lou. I mean, are there are there more in the pipeline right now? Maybe they're not thinking about this valuation theory of 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 net profit or of disgorgement rather. But what what else is coming down the pipe? Well, so I've seen cases up to 2022. If there are 23 cases, I'll admit. I'm behind on them. So you, you need to send them to me, Kurt. You need to send a firm. That makes three of us, I'm sure. <laughs> yeah. I, I haven't seen the 23 stuff. I've seen a couple of 2022 cases and they're all consistent with Lou. They're all just applying Lou. One of them has an interesting point, makes an interesting point that this is not a tracing analysis. So it's not like we're looking for the dirty money itself. The same way you do tracing like in a 33 act case. This is just what were the net profits and we don't care where the net profits went what they were used for. What were the revenues? What were the dirty revenues? And we don't care what they were used for or what they, what asset they went into or whether they were paid out retainings or whatever. What were the gross revenues that were dirty with no tracing? And then what were the expenses that are legitimate? Match them, get the net profit number and you're done. So it, it revokes the idea that there's some kind of a tracing requirement that like you have to point to the dirty money within cash or on the balance sheet or whatever. Uh, that's not a part of this thinking, which is pretty reasonable, I think, and consistent with Lou. There are some pre-Lou cases that are consistent with Lou. So Lou wasn't like a new ruling. It was something that was already true at multiple circuits. Mm -hmm. So you can use some pre-Lou cases to understand Lou to the extent they are consistent with Lou. So I do some of that in the paper too. So I'm using some pre-Lou cases and some post, a couple of post-Lou cases to the extent they're there. By the way, Listeners, you got to read the paper. It's going to be in the show notes. Yeah. Read the paper. Absolutely. Yeah. Like I said, JW, you haven't been on the microphone every episode, but your spirit's <laughs> right here with us. Yeah. And I think that's true, right? A lot of the, the academic research in, in these specific areas do end with more questions than answers. But I think that brings our level of thinking to a higher higher understanding of what the issues may be and, and, and prepare that. And to Kurt's point from a defense bar perspective, uh, you know, in most... Uh, issues when you're dealing with a regulator and, and a penalty or, or something like disgorgements being negotiated, saying that it's the incorrect number is not enough of an answer, right? You need to prepare and think about, you know, 100 is not right. Okay, well, what is right? You know, you want to be able to have that answer. So there's a lot of different things to think about as you get to it, which you can read about right now in the paper titled Disgorgement Accounting After Lou v. SEC in Securities Enforcement Cases, written by our good friend and Probably Waiting in the Wings co-host, Professor J.W. Verrett. It is available on our SSRN, That's the right. first draft for anyone to read. I'd love to get comments back from the practicing law bar, from the accounting bar, forensic accounting bar. I'd love to get your, both of you boys, comments back so I can make the paper better. So it's still in draft form, but I'm really, I'm so 
appreciative to get a chance to come and talk with you guys about this. Well, JW, we really appreciate you coming on. Hopefully some of our thoughts on the paper are already out there in the ether in this podcast. But, you know, like I said, we really appreciate, you know, having walked a lot of this journey with you in mind and, and with your help along the way. So 100 episodes in, we'll, I don't know, Kurt, are we planning out, you know, in our, our project management software to consider our 200th episode? Do we need to put JW down or... We let's I'll be here. let's pencil them in. You know, okay. at, at this clip, it's going to be about about three years from now. I'd um, say, yeah, you know, <laughs> mid twenty twenty seven. Get ready for episode uh, two hundred. Well, let's hope we Barrett. see you I before mean, then. If I don't have a lewd disgorgement matter going on at the time. You know, I'll be available. It'll happen. <laughs> <laughs> we love it. Excellent, JW. Thanks for joining us, and, and always for your support of the podcast. Thank you, guys. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the Insecurities Podcast, and special thanks to our guest, Professor J.W. Verrett of the Antonin Scalia School of Law at George Mason University. As always, we want to hear from you regarding your thoughts, comments, and topics for discussion on future episodes of Insecurities. Please use the hashtag InsecuritiesPod on Twitter or LinkedIn to join the conversation. You can find me at CPA, And I'm at Enforce underscore Update. Be sure to subscribe, rate, and review the Insecurities Podcast wherever you listen. Be well, everyone, and we'll see you next time. Seriously, 100 episodes. Subscribe, share, and thanks for tuning in. Thanks for tuning in. Thanks for listening to Insecurities, a podcast from PLI, the Practicing Law Institute. PLI is a nonprofit provider of authoritative professional services training and continuing education. In an increasingly complex business environment where intricate corporate structures reign, insecurities can help you make sense of it all. A special thanks goes to the producer of insecurities, Daniel Pinitz, as well as hosts Chris Ekimoff and Kurt Wolf. For more information about PLI's SEC Institute, or to view hundreds of hours of fresh and relevant on-demand programming covering changes within the security sector, visit pli.edu membership and sign up for a privileged membership. These recorded materials are designed for educational purposes only. This podcast does not constitute legal, audit, tax, consulting, business, financial, investment, or other professional advice, and it does not create an attorney-client relationship. Please consult a qualified professional advisor before taking any action based on the information herein. Furthermore, the views and opinions expressed in this podcast are solely those of the individual participants. These views are not the views of the hosts or their employers. Users of this podcast may save and use the podcast only for personal or other non-commercial educational purposes. No other use, including without limitation, reproduction, retransmission, or editing of this podcast may be made without the prior written permission from PLI. PLI.